Audi. This episode of the Big Travel Podcast is brought to you by our title sponsor, WeCure. Looking for a smile makeover? Your smile says a lot about you, whether you're looking for a natural smile or a full Hollywood smile makeover. Your vision of the perfect smile can be achieved with WeCure. WeCure's goal is to connect dental patients from all over the UK with internationally accredited dental institutions in Turkey. WeCure will seamlessly combine your procedure with a relaxing holiday in the Mediterranean with all all conveniences included. For more information, please visit wecure.co.uk slash big travel podcast for an exclusive offer for big travel podcast listeners or follow WeCure on Instagram at WeCureUK. Now on to today's episode. Rachel Gotto was pregnant with her first child when her husband went on a diving trip in Ireland and never made it home. Having lost her brother to cancer previously, she was no stranger to grief. However, what follows is an extraordinary journey encompassing being diagnosed with a brain tumour, paralysis, learning to walk again and overcoming agoraphobia before becoming a highly acclaimed coach and therapist. She travels the world giving talks on her experiences, has explored China, India, the Himalayas, Bhutan, the Dominican Republic and much more. From her home in Ireland, it's the very inspirational Rachel Gotto. I'm in Galway on the west coast of Ireland. It's sunny today, which is unusual. And so it's really, really, you know, it's a gorgeous place to live. As you can hear by my accent, I'm a bit of a, uh, a mongrel, as I call myself. So I actually was reflecting and I was thinking one great story that I could tell you is we actually came to Ireland on a boat. In the 1960s, my father was a bit of a sort of a mavericky type of person and he decided to up sticks and he bought an old Baltic trader and um, he decided he was going to bring everybody to New Zealand. I wasn't born at the time. Three of my brothers were on the boat. What happened was they had a potato farm in the south of Ireland and they decided to call in. There was an arger on this boat. The sofa from the house in England was nailed down. So it was a bit of a Heath Robinson sort of journey. And when they arrived to Ireland, they came into this beautiful harbour, right up the harbour, up into the village and where the pier was. And they dropped anchor. And of course, there were curious people because in the 1960s, very few people came to Ireland on boats and very few people even came to Ireland. So they harvested the potatoes. And by the time it came to leave, something else happened. And so we never went to New Zealand. And I think it's an, a marvellous story. And I'm so grateful that we never did because I don't think the boat would have made it. It was a leaky tub. And so we, we started a life in Ireland. And that was the beginning of our whole story, which I think is absolutely marvellous. You must have had very adventurous parents to even think about getting on a boat with a nailed down sofa and an arga um, <laughs> and heading to New Zealand, let alone you yeah. know, stopping in Ireland. It was definitely my father who had that adventurous spirit and he very much had a can-do attitude. He wasn't a sailing man and he didn't really have any experience to sailing, but it was more about the quest for adventure and finding new shores that drove the whole, uh, you know, idea that we were going to sail to New Zealand. And the Seychelles, I remember as a child, my father saying to me, you should have been in the Seychelles by now. <laughs> I didn't even know where, they, where it was. <laughs> it feels like we should all be in the Seychelles right now. I don't know about you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you've, oh, God, I was just about to use a really bad 
unintended pun because your life hasn't been plain sailing um, <laughs> since then. That was a really terrible thing. But I'm going, um, I'm going to say that was an excellent pun. I think it's a wonderful <laughs> segue into <laughs> my life story. It is totally it's a wonderful segue into your life story. It was act- purely accidental. I can't claim it as my own. Um, but uh, why don't you tell us what you do? Because you have a, a, a very, um, I don't know, when you tell people about what you do, does your story about how you became what you do does that does that come first how do you tell it to people well I always start by saying I've had an unusual life and for that I am truly grateful and I love that energy that that creates because yes I've led an unusual life and so I usually say I'm a clinical hypnotherapist but I'm a keynote speaker but I'm an author and but I'm a coach why because I had a journey that I had to go through to where I have really arrived at, which was a journey about neuroplasticity. It was a journey about recovery from extreme trauma and a journey about letting go of things I held dear. And when I came to come through my recovery, I realized that I had intuited things that doctors and therapists teach and you know give to their clients and I was thinking how can I do this you see I had to recover from paralysis I had developed a benign brain tumor that left me completely paralyzed down the left hand side of my body and I was told that I would never walk again and at that point I was still responding to the loss of my husband in a terrible accident I was pregnant with my daughter I was still responding to the loss of a dear brother who I survived sort of an adverse childhood with. So my whole life was populated with letting go loss and grief, trauma, and of course, now this need to recover and at least find some purpose and meaning from this paralysis that I was left with after neurosurgery. And so it was in my recovery, I realized that One, I've got a huge story to tell. Two, I have an absolute amazing wealth of experience under my belt. So somehow I've got to use that because I really, truly have felt grateful for my recovery. And when I found out about clinical hypnotherapy, it it was like all the, the links connected up. And so I understood then that, of course, what I'd been doing intuitively was harnessing the power of my own mind and harnessing the power of the body's innate unique ability to heal itself. And that to me was the most wonderful advent because I was thinking, aha, so that's what I've been doing. So that's what it's all about. And uh, I think neuroplasticity mixed in with therapy is a very, very powerful tool. And as a keynote speaker, I feel that it is my duty to share my story because I vowed when I was in the depths of it and there was no one really there to lead me out of the way because we didn't have the internet as we do now and we didn't have people, mentors and people that we follow. I vowed that one day if I was able to walk again and use my body again in the way it is, that I would share my story and uh, help other people. And you are able to walk again. Um, But take us back to that time. You were pregnant, paralysed, and your husband had recently been killed in in a great a tragic accident um so tell us what happened I wasn't paralyzed at that time um the the what happened was um after my brother died I 
was lucky enough to meet this gorgeous man called Nick. And he was a very adventurous man and very similar to my own father in a way, you know, very involved in the sea. And we had a uh, scuba diving business and uh, he was also a fisherman. And when I got pregnant, of course, I gave up scuba diving and it was a beautiful day. And Nick came to me and said, will you take the boat this evening? Because we had 12 divers coming and he said, I'd love to dive. And it was one of those gorgeous delightos. And I said to him, mm -mm. and I thought about it and I said, OK. So I went down to the boat and usual procedure. We went out to sea and he had a rebreather, which is a, a at the time it was a very sort of avant-garde bit of equipment. And so I put them all in the water in twos, divers going in twos, and everybody gives a signal to say they're okay and they descend down. And we were going to the Cowlin Bridge, which is a very large wreck. And before I knew it, somebody had come to the surface and they were waving. And when you wave in diving circles, it doesn't mean hello, it means I've got a problem. So I moved the boat alongside him and I was told that Nick, my husband, was convulsing on the bottom. And of course, I was well trained, so I immediately went into the emergency procedures, which of course is uh, to call the uh, helicopter, to get the lifeboat, to request ambulance and that. It never really occurred to me in that moment, Lisa, that actually this was very, very serious. I was just operating procedure. So what happened was his equipment had failed and eventually he was sent to the surface, but unfortunately he was already dead by then. So at that moment, I remember him coming to the surface and I remember looking over the side of the boat and it was like my mind split in two. It was like I made a choice that moment that I was going to play a game in my head. So I played the game in my head that he was just tired. He'd just fallen over. He'd just, and I went through all of this. And I remember going onto the radio and requesting the helicopter and saying, what is the ETA? And they said, 45 minutes they're refueling and I knew in that moment and it was that game I played with myself of allowing myself to believe it and not and that went on for quite some time until eventually uh, the helicopter did arrive and Nick was uh, winched off the boat and I wanted to go with him and I wasn't allowed to go with him because I was pregnant and the last thing I saw was my husband disappear into the body of the helicopter and head scudding across the sea towards what would have been the city cork. And so it took me quite some time to bring the boat back into the harbour and then to be taken to the hospital. And I still pretended to myself and it was I even queued at the reception and gave my name. And I saw the man look at me and swallow. And then he just said, step out of the queue, please. And I stepped out of the queue and I feel this nurse tap me and I turn around as I say, how's Nick? And she said, he's dead. And at that moment, it was like a flood came into my body. I didn't know where to be. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to be. And I remember feeling my daughter lurch inside my tummy as the truth came to us both in that moment. And so I went into this, this mode of taking care of everybody. I think I couldn't bear to really accept the truth. And I don't think my psychology was able to accept the truth in that moment. And so it was a long journey. And Nicola was born just three months after Nick died. And it obviously was a very lonely birth. I had a wonderful girlfriend with me, but it was a lonely birth. And Nicola was a very sick child. And so it took a lot of care and 
um, nurturing for her to even be a normal baby because, of course, being present at that accident. And we know now more than we knew then about pregnancies. And really, it started to go badly wrong for me about three or four years later when I started to lose the use of my legs at night. And uh, times when I was driving the car, I'd suddenly find myself on the wrong side of the road. And I did nothing about it. And you might say, you silly woman, why didn't you? You know, what was wrong? But of course, we know the story. I was responding to an adverse childhood. I was responding to the loss of my beautiful brother to cancer not many years earlier and responding to the loss of Nick. And then, of course, being a mum and no sleep and all the things that go with being a mum. And I just didn't recognise that I was seriously ill. And I really knew about it, actually, when I came to on the kitchen floor one morning with Nicola sitting on me and uh, she's screaming, don't die. And of course, medical tests revealed that I had what they call an AVM, a benign inoperable brain tumour. And what that meant was that it was very, very serious for me, but I was so clever that I'd even made a, a grade six AVM, which is the worst possible kind. And so it was growing and there was nothing they could do to stop it. And if they operated, I wouldn't survive surgery. So the, the journey after that was, I'm not one to give up. <laughs> and I didn't give up. And so Lisa, I went into every neurology department on the island of Ireland. And they said, no, I'm sorry, go home and write your will. You need to prepare for your daughter. And undeterred, I went to England and I went to London and I went to five, six hospitals, neurology departments, all the time getting the same answer. We're sorry, Mrs. Gotto, go home and write your will. And then just finally one day, and that's why they say never give up, because a chance meeting with a neurologist who knew a maverick surgeon in Bristol. And that's where the journey began. And I had 15 hours of neurosurgery. And what Mr. Nelson said, I'll give it a go. But if you survive, you must be aware that you will be paralyzed down the left-hand side of your body for the rest of your life. Wow. So I survived, of course, and just about. And of course, I was paralyzed. And the journey of finding out that I was paralyzed was quite something. I think I budgeted for being dead. You know, I hadn't really thought that I might survive. And so the journey of finding out that I couldn't move anymore, I was devastated. I was a very physical person. I loved to sail and swim and scuba dive in, in those days. So to come to in a hospital bed and realize those days were gone was quite something. It really, really was something for me to process. And it took me a long time. And my awareness you know, grew as the days went on. The more I recovered, of course, the more I became aware of my limitations. And uh, I was finally transferred to Biru, which is the Brain Injury Rehabilitation Unit. And uh, there I was to go really to learn to live with my disability. And I had wonderful therapy and there were great doctors and nurses, but I was always furious at the weekends because they all went home, of course, they had to have a break, but I felt I was losing time. And that was the time actually when things changed for me because I realized if I spent every weekend lying in bed, I wasn't going to make any progress. So I began my own therapy then. And on one particular day, I managed to get myself sitting and up and out of bed and I pulled myself across the floor to the corner of the room and I pulled myself to sitting. 
standing rather. And I stood on my one good leg. And I remember saying to myself, this is it, Rach. You've got this now. You've got this. And it was just an amazing feeling. It was literally like I had climbed Everest because I knew that somehow I'd found the solution and it was within me. And I worked in earnest from that day. Every single day I worked. And the funny thing is, is I only had one pair of shoes in the hospital, the ones I walked in with, which was a pair of black cowboy boots that I bought on one of my journeys to the hospitals. And so you can imagine this sort of image of this woman requesting her cowboy boots <laughs> because she didn't have anything else. And they said, why do you want your boots? And I said, because I'm going to walk again. And that's what I did. I literally worked and worked. And slowly but surely, I, there was a tiny flicker in my big toe one day. And that was the beginning of me regaining my leg. It took many, many years for me to gain the use of my left arm again. And I'd been left-handed. So it would make complicated so enormously to have to be right-handed and learn to do everything with my right hand. And at the same time, stare at my limbs and hope that they would begin to work again. And that's the interesting part about what I do now, because it's about harnessing the power of the mind and the body. And we know that the body and the mind respond to what we say inwardly and what we visualize inwardly. And somehow I knew that. So I stared at my left arm and willed it to move and saw it moving. And I loved it. And that was something that I had to learn to do was actually to learn to love my body again. Because I knew that if I didn't, it was like a disconnect. So a lot of this um, happened very, very slowly and progressively over the years. It was incremental progress, but I was so motivated to be there for Nicola, my daughter. I was so motivated to be a normal mum. So that journey took me probably about five, six years, but I did walk again and I do walk. And they said, oh, you'll never walk without a role. And I walk without a role. And I use my left hand. It's not brilliant, but I can use it for everything I need to do now. So I think that's a great progress. The power of the mind is incredible, isn't it? And it just shows what we can do if we really put our minds to it. I annoy myself a little bit in that sense, because, you know, when people have cancer and, and they die and people say, oh, they put up a good fight. I don't think everyone can fight everything with your mind. And I don't think, I think some some people would probably take offence to the to the fact that somebody didn't fight hard enough because they did die. So that, that always weighs on my mind. But when you can, it is incredible what, what strength the mind can have over the body like that. It really is, isn't it? Absolutely. And I totally agree with you. I mean, there's never any blame in that because, you know, we all have different backgrounds and we all have different thought processes and experiences in life. But what I always say to people, though, is that you ultimately do have a choice the choice in how you respond to something. And I think that's very, very empowering. Once we can step back and say that about ourselves, I had a choice to, to wait for my recovery or wait for the people on Monday or whatever, but I chose to do it my way. And I think doing something your way is one thing that we can sort of have pride in and feel empowered through that. 
So we haven't actually, I mean, this conversation is, is fabulous and I love, you know, I feel very much in an inspired sort of state at the moment and trying to, I think we, we've all had um, to deal with, with mental health issues and trauma with the, the global pandemic and the lockdown and some people have taken this in, in different ways. And I find this sort of conversation really helpful in terms of you know, you find yourself having those low moments and you actually think, well, actually, of course, some people have clinical depression and it's, it's a very different thing. But actually, we have the power in many ways to, to see things differently and to go out there and put a smile on your face and to fake it till you make it and to do all of these things that, that actually just help make even day-to-day things that little bit easier. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, the thing is, I always say to people, when they're in a funk, which is I'm open to creative possibilities. It's about allowing yourself to range in different possibilities and see is there a place to go just in this very moment because often people look at the bigger picture and that's daunting and it takes your power away. But if you bring yourself back to the, this moment, this very moment, if you can see what can I create right now for myself and how can I maybe just make a, a choice to change something in the moment? Once we do that, it's like we're unlocking the chains that hold us in that place of this is where I am. This is I, there's nothing I can change. If we just come home to ourselves, and I always say to people as well, one thing I didn't know about Lisa was I didn't know about self-compassion at the time. I was quite hard on myself. As, as you hear, I was relentless. I worked hard and I kept at it. I wish that I'd known that if I'd have been compassionate to myself, and a little bit kinder for the times I fell and for the times I got back up again, I think that my journey would have been slightly easier. And that's another thing that I think we should add into the element now that we're with COVID and we're working at home and we're all sort of forced into this particular way of being is, is actually to be compassionate for the time the doorbell rings, for the time we don't get it right, for the day we get up on our hair skew. And the day when our heart's not in it, when you can say, you know, I have compassion for you because you're trying so hard. I think that is one way of changing a whole energy inside is that nurturing relationship we can create with ourselves. We are harsher to ourselves, aren't they, that we would be to say a best friend. If a best friend came and, and told you the struggles they were having, you'd be very sympathetic. And it, it's quite nice to harness that sympathy and empathy and actually apply it to yourself sometimes I think it is and we must make it a practice I mean the one thing I do know about the mind is the mind learns by repetition and we are creatures of habit so if we don't create this energy of self-nature and kindness within ourselves I love it you know in the Buddhist practice which is practicing loving kindness and compassion if we can put that as a mirror towards ourselves and imbibe that and bring that into our bodies that immediately makes us more uh, capable and more empowered. And it changes our energy so that we can actually forgive ourselves when we're not you know, on top of it. And how can we be on top of it all the time? It's impossible. I was just having this conversation this morning, like speaking about the, the neural pathways and almost like what you focus on more, you get more of. And because I was walking across the path this morning in the sunshine after having dropped my children off and I left a message to a couple of friends of mine. We've got this nice little, very uplifting group. And, um, you know, we really, we really support each other, actually. And um, I left a message saying, I feel really happy just now walking across the path at uh, the park. And half of me 
was actually nervous at saying that because sometimes when you say I'm really happy, that's when half of me thinks something bad is going to happen to almost like a hat. You know, you said you were happy. You're going to get that phone call. And I like you, you lost your husband and you were pregnant. That is obviously very, very traumatic. But I had trauma early on when I was 19. My boyfriend of four years, um, we'd split up a few months before, um, but we were still very close friends. And my best friend, the two of them were killed in a motorbike accident. And I was 19 and far from home. My parents were in Spain. I was in the UK. And that changed the course of my life for, for a little while. And, uh, you know, I got back on my feet as well. Um, but uh, I, it, it just makes sometimes because I've had that phone call and not many people have escaped tragedy, I think, in their lives because I've had that phone call. Sometimes when I am feeling that happy thing, I, I get the I feel that suddenly, oh, I shouldn't be feeling happy like that because I'm going to get the phone call. I'm going to get the phone call from the school or from my parents or whatever. And my friends told me, absolutely nonsense. Just feel that happy moment and enjoy it for what it is. And, you know, the rest will happen, whether you feel express that you're happy or not. You can't really control the other things happening. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think that once, you know, we've all had some kind of trauma we can't measure trauma because each person is different we've all had terrible times and I think that once that imprint is there of course we we fear that something's going to happen again and for me I realized that I'm slightly primed for that as well so I really use my gratitude list to bring that in and I think that's what's important is that to keep reminding ourselves that we are you know we have wonderful things that we're safe now to keep repeating the same story to ourselves. And then we can have that sort of feeling of being immersed in safety. And like you, when I go outside, I look at every single detail I can possibly recognize in my environment to really cement myself into the moment because our mind is very busy going off doing things like looking for trouble and looking for past memories that can, can cloud that that moment of just being. And I think just being as much as we possibly can in the moment, that creates that sense of joy and connection, which is, is really helpful, particularly in times. It actually brings me nicely, you know, this is the Big Travel Podcast, and we ha- I'd say we haven't spoken about actual travel, but I feel like travel, and it is about exploring life stories through travel. And I think like I just, I, I feel that this kind of is travel in a way. It's a it's the journey, isn't it? And all those travel cliches that we apply to life. It's the the whole experience and the, the journey. So I feel like it is kind of travel in some way. And you are in Galway, which is a place of travel to anyone who's not from there. Beautiful place. I've been there. And uh, of course, you arrive there by boat. But let's let's talk about the actual physical travel for a moment rather than the, the metaphorical one. And also um, talking about being in that moment, I think actually that's what holidays and travel are about is making you putting you out of your comfort zone somewhere that actually can be very comfortable as well but also out of your comfort zone because it's somewhere new and exciting and uh, and helping you immerse yourself and really feel the moment when you're somewhere different rather than the everyday you know school journeys car journeys commuting and that sort of thing um so I'm wittering on now but have you how do you feel about travel have you traveled I don't know I'm, I'm gonna uh, pick a question out of nowhere in fact there's no question there I'll leave it over to you <laughs> absolutely I love traveling and I've always traveled and uh I should have been in Morocco this summer walking in the high atlas but 
One uh, journey that uh, I was, my last journey that was on was actually Bhutan, Eastern Bhutan. And uh, I went on a, a walking trip in Eastern Bhutan and talking about journeys and out of your comfort zones, this really did bring me out of my comfort zone because the roads in Bhutan are really, really, really treacherous. And oftentimes it's two kilometers straight to the bottom on these mountain roads. And I remember thinking when I went to Bhutan on our, on our journey there, I was saying, I'm really ready for a whole new adventure. I really need something to shake me up and get my, you know, my whole spirit changed because I've been working for, you know, quite some time. And I remember saying to myself as I was being driven along these roads, now, Rachel, now's your next challenge. Because I was caught between enjoying my holiday and also preserving my own life because these roads were so bad. And it was literally about you know, out of my comfort zone and into this challenge again. So that's what I, I really enjoyed about it was the fact that I was invited again to visit my fear levels um, while on holiday, which just seems completely crackers to me. And so I spent three weeks in utter terror visiting these beautiful remote monasteries and looking at these wonderful, wonderful terraced fields in high, you know, Himalayan remote areas. And it was really interesting because one night I went to bed and I had like PTSD. I kept seeing the car falling off the cliff in my sleep. And I really, really had to fight to overcome that feeling that I was out of control. And I was thinking about it recently because, you know, we've got these, these parameters now with, you know, lockdowns and all of these things. They're, they're situations out of our control entirely. And Reflecting back to Bhutan, I had to work at letting go of the outcome. Whatever was going to happen off those cliffs with that car, it was going to happen. So again, about the, the bringing the mind into the moment and bringing myself into the beauty of the moment and seeing my environment rather than doing the, the what ifs. So Bhutan was a, um, a wonderful, wonderful adventure and I absolutely adored it. And we had the experience of uh, staying with a tribe, the Merrick tribe in Far Eastern Bhutan. They've no um, modern services. It's five hours to the nearest track and they are nomadic. So that was a, a wonderful experience. And again, it called me to reach into areas that had been dormant for a while. I hadn't risked it for a while and I hadn't to forage my own food for a while. And so it was a, a gorgeous place to go. And certainly it uh, made me grow as a person again. And of course I had the wonderful riches of meeting new cultures and new people and gorgeous faces. I love faces. And in Bhutan, I saw some of the most incredible faces. Oh, I love I love that about travel and, and seeing new faces. Nobody's ex expressed that on the podcast so far, not directly, but that is um, that is something wonderful about seeing how the faces change. Particularly if you do overland travel, often you can you can see the faces change, can't you? You can see the eye colours going darker as you go somewhere, or lighter as you go back around the other way, and uh, it, it's it's fascinating. But going to um, Bhutan and putting your life at risk is not your average holiday. Do you feel that your uh, the, the experiences in your life and your difficulties and, you know, having overcome many of those to, as much as you can do, um, do you feel that that has made you a little bit more adventurous and given you that sort of wandering spirit? I think that I was born with the adventurous spirit because I think my father did that. At the age of five, I was sent out into my little tiny boat and told to go out and catch fish for dinner. So I think my earlier experiences were all about 
me, being outside of your comfort zone or maybe even outside of your age group. I don't know how a five-year-old goes out and fishes, but I did. I knew how to fish. I knew how to catch food. And so I was always um, challenged or I always wanted to challenge myself by going to out far fun places. And I, you know, I remember when we went to the Dominican Republic some years ago, backpacking. And incidentally, we always backpack. We never do anything, um, you know, hotel wise. We always have to do it the hard way, which I really enjoy. And I remember sitting in the back of a minivan in the Dominican Republic and all these amazing people came in from the fields, it's um, sugarcane fields. And I think there were about 28 of us in this minivan and I'm in the back with my rucksack squashed and I fell asleep. And I remember 27 people shouting at me, it's your stop, it's your stop. And the connection that was foraged because people love to meet new people. I love to meet new people. And I'm still in contact with some of the people from Bhutan. I think that the exchange of cultures between us and sometimes humanity can seem so far apart and we can all seem as if we don't have any connection. And when you go traveling, I think it's the smiles that we meet along the way that truly connect us as humans together. And we see children and we see grandmas and grandpas and we can identify with it because it's what we have come from and that unites us. I think it's a, a wonderful thing. When you don't speak the same language, you have to find other ways of communicating. And that's often where the smiles and the gestures and the body language really comes into it. Absolutely. And it's very joyful. I remember being in China and, um, we had no language, of course, and no language to communicate with. And what was so beautiful about the people, it was in southern China, that was so beautiful, people wrote letters, little notes for us, which was like this, the number something rather bus um, at such and such a time, these two people need to get it. So we went around showing our little notes to people and people would nod and then write another note. And we and this is exactly how we went around southern China with backpacks. And uh, we found it fascinating that we never missed a bus. We always got to where we needed to go. We only had the rough guide and that was it. And I love that about if you're open to the possibilities, if you're open to the journey, and that might be metaphorically with inside yourself, or in reality, if you're open to the journey, doors open and and the way comes clear. And so traveling inwardly or traveling outwardly, it's part of us as humans. And, you know, it's something that I think is fascinating. About it being part of us as humans, I've discussed this on the podcast before, but about the, the innate need to travel and the need to almost see what's over the next horizon. I think that urge in a lot of us is actually what's kept the human race going in many, in many ways. That's right, because that's how the DNA was, was um, you know, spread right through out of Africa and right all the way through North America and all the, all the way. I think absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I've loved about travel, and this might sound a bit cliched, but I, or I've always had this hankering to travel and always have. But do you know what happens after about a month to six weeks of being in, on my road, on the backpack with everything? I suddenly get this hankering to go home. And I absolutely love that about what happens for me. There's a time when I need to go home after, you know, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. And when I go home, I've got this added appreciation for where I do live. And it reinforces my connection to my choices to live on the West of Ireland. And, you know, it reinforces my connection to my, my environment around me, the trees and 
the animals around me. So I think travel is a wonderful way as well to be a magnifier or to be like a kaleidoscope to maybe remind you that it's time, you've done your time and you need to move on or time to go home again. So it's uh, a very important part. And we can travel in our minds because some people might say, I, I can't do this. I'm not, you know, it's not part of my possibilities. You can still travel in your mind. And I know that might sound very grand, but actually challenging yourself internally with new ideas, new concepts, and, you know, watching other people go around the world, that also opens up great doors within us. And of course you have, the, there have been times when you haven't been able to move very well and you have had to travel in your mind. Absolutely. And that was the case for two and a half years. I ended up um, an accidental addict to prescription medications. And when I was coming off the uh, benzodiazepines, uh, I, as they were called, um, I was agoraphobic for two and a half years. And I lived in a small farmhouse at the top of a hill in quite a remote area down in the south of Ireland. And for two and a half years, I was imprisoned in this house. I barely left it. And so the traveling and the journeying that I did within my own mind was phenomenal. And there were times when my mind turned against me. There were times when the only relief I could get was imagining being on a journey on a desert, on a camel somewhere. So yes, and the, the, the routes that we can find when we can't quite literally go anywhere can be educational, they can be enriching, they can be painful. But I think that's all part of our our journey again as we grow go through life. How you've explained how you overcame the the physical paralysis, but how did you then overcome the mental paralysis of agoraphobia? Going from the person who won't leave their farmhouse at the top of the hill to the person who's risking their life on dirt tracks in Bhutan. It was a long journey, and I remember one particular day when I was starting to recover. I'd lost all the ability to socialize. I didn't have any real friends left. I had some people who loved me, but it was a lonely period. And because interestingly, you know, when you, you have a physical issue, it's a lot easier for people to empathize and connect with you. When you have mental health issues, people are often, uh, I wouldn't say scared, but they, they don't really know how to respond to that. And I found that. So my heart always goes out to people with mental health issues because I know that isolation. And I remember when I was in recovery, I, I was finally able to go down the street and the street felt as if it was a whole canal. It felt so wide. I felt so minuscule and insignificant. And I saw two women standing outside a shop window talking. And I remember wanting to go up and stand in front of them and watch their intonation, listen to their intonation and watch their body language because I was learning how to be in the world again, quite literally. And I remember committing to memory the, the sound they made and the gestures they made and thinking, I'll do that next time. So my recovery was so slow and I had to learn literally how to, to be in the world again, to communicate again and to trust. Because when you have mental health issues, a lot of your trust goes because you lose your pride, you lose your dignity in some ways. And so I had to trust that life hadn't deserted me and that life was still there waiting for me to come to it again. And so I started slowly and I learned literally day by day. I started to reach out to people a little bit. I found a community 
online who understood my condition and that helped to you know really make me feel as if I wasn't the only person with this condition because you know recovery from benzodiazepines can be a very lonely thing because it's not really something that's acknowledged and recognized very readily there are all sorts of other addictions that are recognized but when I found a community that was very very helpful but the process took a very very long time but I grew my strength literally by charting my progress and you know finding little milestones and recognizing that I was stronger emotionally and allowing people back in as well that was really really helpful painful but helpful and you, it, it reminds me a little bit about the conversation I had uh, recently with Samantha Kelly, um, and we spoke about the girl with the apple. I won't, I won't go into it now, but with the, the girl with the apple that sort of inspired me to come out of a, a, a bad situation in, in my life, and um, and uh, it was a, a just a really lovely conversation, a bit like this actually. But you must look at yourself now, and compared to those dark moments, you had the physical dark, you had the grief, you had the physical recovery the mental recovery and now you travel and uh, the world you speak at large events standing up in front of people and telling them your story and inspiring them you help people on a one-to-one -one basis you must comparing those two it just must feel incredible sometimes it's very hard for me to recognize the person who's gone through all of that um all all i can say to myself is that I am utterly, truthfully grateful for all these experiences. And I think that when I look back at the woman who went through all of that, I, I just think, gosh, if this hadn't all have happened, I wonder would I have liked myself? I wonder would I have, have got to any place of, of understanding myself? And I really do look back down that line and I say, I am so grateful for each one of those tragedies and traumas I've experienced because it truly has formed who I am. And growing compassion for myself probably has been one of the biggest and most difficult journeys to grow to like myself again, because I think I blamed myself for a lot of what happened. And I was still holding that blame up until quite recently. But to see one of my clients turn around and find their own way of being in the world, that reminds me that, you know, the journey had a purpose. And so, yes, I look back at that woman and I, that young girl and, you know, that young mother and um, I say, wow, you know, well done and well done for making it. And now is the time to help other people is really where I feel called now to be of service so that somebody else who's coming through that long tunnel of darkness can say, oh, there's a little bit of a light up there. Maybe I'll follow that light and maybe I'll get there. It's just a very, very inspirational thing. And thank you so much for actually coming to speak to us about it. I'm not ending there because I've got to ask you my last question because uh, my last question is always about music because I think music and travel very much go hand in hand. So I'm going to ask you to, to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel or a turning point in your life or anything really, a song that means a lot to you. Uh, what is that song and, and what is the memory? Why does it mean that much to you? I was in a minibus and hit a landslide in the high Himalayas on my honeymoon with my husband. 
And we went to Calcutta and then we took a train right up through India into the Himalayas. And it was a place called New Jaipal Gauri. And we transferred up there right into the high Himalayas. And one of my greatest wishes was to go to a really remote monastery and to meditate with the Buddhist monks. And so we were headed to Fadong Monastery, wherever it was now, Lisa, but somewhere up there. And of course, precipitous roads, because I, I'm, I seem to be addicted to precipitous roads and hills. So we came across a landslide and we couldn't go any further. So we ended up digging ourselves out of this landslide and we were in a red minibus. And I remember the gorgeous man driving us and he had shovels in the back. So that's what we did. But the tape still played while we were digging ourselves out of this landslide. And it was a horse with no name, America. And to this day, every time I hear that song, I smile. And I smile because it reminds me of my husband. And I smile because it reminds me of the first time I did a real, you know, a real journey that was not on the you know, beaten track. It was way off the beaten track. And so that's the song that I remember for travel. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the Big Travel Podcast and just such an inspirational story. And you've left me with a big smile on my face. So that's uh, that's one thing. So much, Lisa. It's great to be invited. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we do, please leave us a lovely review somewhere and tell your friends. I'm busy lining up some fantastic guests. And as is tradition, we're going to put together a Christmas special soon. Mm-hmm.